Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The reading is verses 1 through 11, but I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter through 14. Uh, Hebrews, we'll read the entire chapter. Hebrews chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, whom also he made, uh, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? May God bless the reading of his holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage that we have read that... Uh, shows the supremacy of your Son. Lord, we pray that as we look into your Word, that your Holy Spirit would direct us, illumine us to the truth that is here. We know that we cannot grow as your children to maturity without your Word. And so I pray that 
this hour would be a time where uh, you work in us what you would have for us as we look into this passage of Scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The supremacy of Christ. Why would we even have to talk about the supremacy of Christ? We know that Christ is supreme. We know that He is God. Uh, we know uh, that He is greater than the angels, that He is greater than the prophets. But the people that the writer of Hebrews was writing to, these were Jewish Christians, probably Jewish Christians in Rome, uh, evidently had begun to second-guess their own commitment. We sang the hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I think that's something that could have been said. Now, I think uh, probably there are those that are being addressed in this uh, epistle who were not Christians. But I think there were also those who were Christians and who were struggling. And so the writer of Hebrews begins this letter extolling the supremacy of Christ. Or, as many people say, the theme of Hebrews is Christ the better way. Christ the better way. Why would uh, you say that? We see in verses 1 through 4, Christ is superior to the prophets. We see in verse 5 throughout the rest of the chapter and into chapter 2, Christ is supreme over the angels. And then he gives proofs of his supremacy. But this theme, Jesus the better way, is throughout Hebrews. The word better or better way appears 13 times in Hebrews. He's better than the angels, chapter 1. He brings things that are a better things that belong to salvation, chapter 6. He offers better hope, 7, verse 19. He offers a better testament, chapter 7 and verse 22. And then in chapter 8 and verse 6, he offers a better covenant. And actually, it's the same Greek word. Testament and covenant in the Greek text are the exact same words. Interesting, this word covenant or testament. Diathakos, which means dia means thoroughly. Thakos means to place or set. Thoroughly placed. God has thoroughly established his covenant with us. It's a better covenant. It's a covenant that does not depend upon us. It's a covenant that depends upon His power and His righteousness. It's a thorough covenant. So you have a better covenant, better testament, better promises, chapter 8, verse 6. Better sacrifices, chapter 9. A better possession, chapter 10. A better country awaits us, chapter 11. 
a better resurrection, also chapter 11. Better things than those things of Abel, chapter 12. And even when the word better is not explicitly mentioned, even without the word, the theme of better or more excellent is everywhere in Hebrews. It is clearly a theme running through this book. Better than the Old Testament prophets. Better than the angels. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, the writer says, remember he's writing to Jew, Jewish Christians, he says Jesus is better than Moses. Better than Moses. Then in chapter 4, he says better than Joshua. And in chapters 5 through 9, he shows that the priesthood of Christ is better than that of Aaron. He's superior to the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 9, he's better than the tabernacle and better than the Old Testament sacrifices. All of these things are good things. The law, uh, Moses, the Levitical priesthood, all good things established by God. But Christ is over them all. So these are not inferior in the sense that God made something inferior. No, Christ, the Bible tells us, is the completion of these things. He completes the law. He completes the sacrifices. He is the supreme one. Jesus is the better way. Now, in this chapter, let's back up to chapter 1 where we are. Uh, the main theme is Jesus better than the angels. Now, why would that be a point to make? Better than the angels. Well, first of all, Jews held angels in very high esteem. Very high esteem. We know that the angels played a key role in the giving of the law of God. You see this in Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, specifically that the angels participated. God used angels in the giving of the law. Uh, Paul mentions it in Galatians 3.19, the use of angels. Angels have a very high place in the Jewish mind. They were instrumental throughout the Old Testament in the giving of prophecies. Angels would appear to prophets, minister to them, and too many examples to mention in the Old Testament where angels, and in the New Testament, who gave the news of the birth of Christ but angels. They were messengers. They delivered God's message. Angels were very awe-inspiring, even to the point whereby people sometimes tried to worship them. Uh, you see, and 
Uh, let's go ahead and look at in Revelation. John uh, is tempted to do this, actually does this, and is somewhat rebuked in uh, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. An angel appeared, uh, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, not me. So there was something grand, uh, uh, amazing, majestic about angels that caused people to be tempted to worship them. That just shows how magnificent they were in appearance and presence. Uh, it happens again in the chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation, verses 8 and 9. And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me those th these things. Then saith he to me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, Worship God. Almost an exact repetition of what he had just told him back in chapter 19. So this tells me that angels held a very high place. Uh, they are created beings. And they are, the scripture says, they are, uh, that human beings are lower than the angels. That is, they don't have, we don't have the power or the prestige that angels have. But here, the writer of Hebrews is focusing on Christ's superiority over these magnificent beings. <clears throat> so why? What are the proofs that he gives that Christ is supreme? Let's look at them. Number one, verse two, he, Christ, is the Son. Notice what he says. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now we know he's going to talk about the superiority over angels. Here he's specifically addressing prophets too. He is greater than the prophets. He is the Son. When you get to verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son. So, this is a point of emphasis that the writer of Hebrews is making. Now, if you noticed in Hebrews chapter 1, there's a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. And that makes sense because... He's writing to Jewish Christians. Christians who have grown up under a Levitical system. Christians who have grown up uh, familiar with the Old Testament. So the writer of Hebrews is tying these two together. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Christ is the Son. The Son of God. In fact... In verse 5, when it says, I will be to him a father, 
That's a quotation from 2 Samuel 7, 14, where Nathan said to David and told David that the kingship of David's seed would be forever. So it mattered and it matters that he is the son. I will be to him a father. Secondly, Christ is the heir. The heir. Now some sons are not heirs. Some sons do not receive the estate. Some sons do not inherit things from their fathers. I'm an early American uh, historian and one of the things I teach is uh, colonial America and the settlement of the colonies. One of the things you find that uh, in England they practiced what was called primogenitor. And that is that the lion's share of the estate went to the first son. So if you were a second, third son, you were not going to get as much. And you might not get anything. Hopefully the daughters would marry a first son. Right? So a lot of the colonists that came in those early days were second and third sons. They came here to get land. They came here to start a new life because their estates were not there for them in England. Well, Christ is the heir. And He is the inheritor of all things. He is appointed heir, verse 2, of all things. Imagine that. The heir of everything. In verse 6, he's called the first begotten. He is the first son. And he's the only son. The son of God. This is a reference to his superiority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This reminds us of Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Satan in the temptation said, Jesus, see, Satan is, an, is a fallen angel, and he's wanting what? Worship. And he says to Jesus in the temptation, Fall down and worship me and I will give you the nations of the world. The problem is, Jesus already had that inheritance. But he, but he needed to go through the cross first. So what was Satan trying to do? I think he was trying to divert Christ from the cross. To divert him from giving himself as a sacrifice. A beautiful thing that we find in the Bible is that we are called fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. When we are adopted into God's family by grace, we become, the Bible says, in Romans 8, 17, joint heirs with Christ. Imagine that. Imagine that. And the Bible says we will rule and reign with Him. 
We're fellow heirs. So he is the heir. He's the son. He's the heir. Third, he's the creator. Now, any good Jew knew that only God was the creator. Only God. And here, the writer of Hebrews is reminding these Christians that Jesus is God. Don't forget his deity. Notice verse 2, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus, the creator. Notice what it says there in verse 2 again. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And if you look at verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. And this is in reference to Jesus. This is an Old Testament quotation in reference to Jesus as the Creator. When it says, This day have I begotten thee, this day have I begotten thee. Uh, is a statement, you know, that we're familiar with, for example. Uh, uh, begotten from the Father before all ages in the Nicene Creed. And this day refers to God's eternal day because Christ is eternal. Fourth, not only is he the son, the heir, and the creator, he is the revealer of God. Look at verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So he is the revealer. Notice the word brightness. Literally means radiance or outraying. It's a ray that's coming from His glory. You see this in the transfiguration. When Christ is transfigured, it says He had, uh, he had the appearance of white as the light. And He did shine as the sun. Matthew 17. Mark 9, He was exceeding white as snow. Luke 9, he was white and glistering. The writers are giving us terms to explain the grandeur of the revelation of God. He is God. Notice it says he is the express image of his person. The express image of his person. Literally, this uh, express image means a stamp or an exact engraving. Speaking of the fact that Christ is of the same substance and nature of the Father. Uh, the hypostatic union. This also is addressed in the Nicene Creed of 325, 
against Arianism, uh, the heresy uh, that denied the deity of Christ. Jesus is the express image of his person because he is God himself. Begotten, not made, the Nicene Creed says. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. He is the express image of his person. Jesus is called the Logos of God in John 1. That is the Word of God. The one who gives the message. Who carries the message. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He's the revealer of God because He is God. And you see that he, unlike angels, receives worship. Let all the angels, verse 6, look at that. Let all the angels of God, what? Worship him. A true godly angel is not going to receive worship. But he will worship the Lord. Number five, he is the sustainer. He is the sustainer. Look at verse three. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And here it is. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says, By him all things consist. All things hold together. Matthew Henry said, He keeps the world from dissolving. He holds it together. The Hellenistic Jew Philo of Alexandria, who was born 25 B.C., but he lived... As a contemporary in the early days of Christianity, he died at about 50-something A.D. He was born in 25 B.C., rather. Said that the Logos, he talked about the Logos. Now, he was not saying this specifically about Christ, but he talked about the Logos. And a lot of Christians have looked at what Philo says about the Logos. And he said something very uh, interesting. He said that the Logos was the bond of the universe. The, the, the one who held it all together. He is the controller of creation's existence and its duration. And you get that in verses 11 through 13. You read that sometime. Where you have this, uh, he controls the duration. He's not only the creator he keeps it together and keeps it going. He's the sustainer. Uh, number six, Christ is the redeemer. Verse three. He is the redeemer. When he had, middle of the verse, verse three, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, purged our sins. When he had by himself purged our sins. This is a reference 
to the Levitical sin, uh, the, the Levitical system of purification. Whereas the priest had to go in year by year. Whereas it was an ongoing sacrifice. So there was never a, 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 a complete purification. All of those things in the Old Testament, Hebrews tells us later, was a shadow of things to come. The Old Testament is the shadow. Christ is the real. He is the completion of the Levitical system. Notice it says by himself he purged our sins. He was the sacrifice. So the great revealer of God, the sustainer, the creator, the sun, the brightness of his glory, the heir of all things, God of very God, came to earth to put away my sin. Came to this earth for me. Uh, this is throughout Hebrews. If you go to Hebrews 7, verse 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. He's an eternal priest. And this, and you can read similar things in chapter 9. The Levitical system could never produce a real or permanent purification. And that's what the writer is seeking to get across. There were multiple sacrifices. All kinds of sacrifices. Christ, one sacrifice completed them all. He is the Redeemer. He is also the Sovereign. The Sovereign One. The Sovereign Ruler. The Eternal Ruler. And here in verse 3, in verse 8 and verse 13, we see that Christ is not just the sacrifice. He's also the priest. Notice it says, he's, and he's the king. He's the king priest. It says he sat down, verse 3. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That speaks of his kingship. But I think it also speaks of his priesthood. The priest in the Old Testament didn't sit down. He was constantly moving. But Christ sat down. He's the king priest. The high priest did not sit down in the Holy of Holies, but Christ sat down. Completed work. Sitting down shows the completed work of the sovereign king priest. Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 6, which says there will be a priest on his throne. A priest on his throne. And of course, the writer of Hebrews talks about this 
uh, and alludes to this over in chapter 7, verses 14 through 17 with Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And priests come from the tribe of Levi. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. He's the eternal priest. He never, uh, after his death and resurrection, he shall never die again. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we know that Melchizedek meets Abram. Melchizedek is uh, the king of Salem, but also a priest. Christ is the fulfillment of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot more that you could say about the supremacy of Christ. We are literally scratching the surface this morning. But I want to close with something that is even more stunning to me even than the things that I've just said to you. And that's in chapter 2, in verse 9. The writer has made all of this point about how that Christ is better than angels. And then says this in chapter 2, verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Above, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. Verse 9 but we of chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Imagine that. We've just spent all this reading about Christ is greater, better than the angels. And then he says, but we see Jesus. Notice it says Jesus, not Christ. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. This is about the humiliation of Christ. This is about the incarnation. The grandeur of God, God's only Son, King and Sovereign of the universe, made Himself lower than the angels. Now does that mean that the angels were greater in spirit than him. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he became a man. And the Bible says that men are lower than the angels. Now, there's a mystery here. He is man, fully man, fully God. But it says here, and I think there's a, I think the writer of Hebrews does this on purpose to emphasize he's better than the angels, but he made himself lower than the angels. Why? 
to suffer death for us. Angels don't die. Men die. And Jesus made him, became a man so that he could pay our sin debt. I think one of the best commentaries on this section of Scripture that exists in the Bible is in Colossians chapter 1. And I just want to simply read it as we close. It's the best commentary I know on Hebrews chapter 1. Colossians 1, 14 through 22 says this. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. A lot of the same things, aren't they? The firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence, the supremacy. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. But here's when He became lower than the angels, verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies, that's us, in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled. In the body of His flesh, through death. Why? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Isn't that magnificent? Isn't that a magnificent truth? He was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For us. Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. That's what happened. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85.10 Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Christ is the righteous one, the magnificent one, the holy one, the true one, the sovereign one. But it says righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The holy and righteous one became lower than the angels to suffer death for us and to, as the writer said, as Paul says in Colossians, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Christ is superior. He is the supreme one. But thank God He came for us 
to redeem us and to give us a full inheritance for eternity. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we will never be able to fully fathom until we get to heaven the magnificence of what you have done for us. I pray that today you would be magnified in our hearts for this glorious, matchless gospel. And may we be energized and encouraged to walk after you because of what we see from this wonderful passage of the supremacy of your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Amen.